Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the ATL Alts Podcast. This is your host, Andre Sindate. Today, I am joined by Jason Joseph, the Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Trilogy Investments, which is an Alpharetta, Georgia-based single-family build-for-rent developer and investor. Jason, welcome to the ATL Alts Podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Jason, this topic of uh, single family build for rent is one that has garnered quite a bit of attention over the last year or two. Um, I was really excited to get the opportunity to have this conversation. So I want to jump into many facets of talking housing. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm actually a Alfred native, not, not a lot of us uh, from here. So it's I think I might be one of three. And uh <laughs> So, uh, so Alfred, a native, uh, grew up here, um, went to high school here, um, and, and really after I came out of school, um, ended up going into um, a small stint on the corporate side with uh, Merrill Lynch and Anderson Consulting and then spun into my first entrepreneurial effort called X1 Capital, client-side investment banking group, um, that really took me across um, the globe um, doing structured finance, project finance, and other areas in real estate when we hit the GFC. Um, Great Recession, we ended up um, transitioning from being an advisor into principal investing. And from there, um, began a a series of companies, um, um, some successful, some not, as they always say on the entrepreneurial side, um, that brought me into principal investing, doing value add and opportunistic, um, some heavy rehab, rehab, et cetera. Um, And as those series of companies sort of evolved and grew and bought and sold and evolved, um, in 2015, myself and uh, two other gentlemen, um, as the value add and opportunistic, um, we'll call opportunities, uh, began to dry up as the economy began to rebuild and as new um, um, pieces and parts to commercial real estate uh, continued to evolve. And those yield curves began to compress. Um, we saw development as an interesting opportunity and started a company called Mayfair Street Partners, um, where I've been a principal. Uh, and managing director there uh, between myself and my two partners. And over the course of the last six years, um, have done a lot of really interesting um, uh, mixed use, ground up and heavy rehab, historic rehab um, deals in um, the Atlanta, we'll call it Alfred Atlanta area, heavy concentration in Alpharetta specifically, obviously, because I'm from here. Um, but then um, we have offices in both Winston-Salem, North Carolina and Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, where both my two partners reside. So we were very big on being local uh, to where we were developing, um, knowing the complexities of development and new construction, as well as heavy rehab. Um, and then from there, the irony of where we transitioned um, into the thought process around Build for Rent came out of, ironically, one of our deals, a commercial deal that we bought a piece of dirt in Winston-Salem and went through a process of rezoning and entitling it for garden style multifamily as most commercial developers um, do. We are generalists. Um, We did not have, you know, we were not hotel developers. We were not an office developer. We were not a multifamily developer. We were a developer that sought yield for our investors and for our balance sheet capital um, where we saw. And so we had nice between the three of us, good concentric circles of positive, um, skill sets and those skill sets ended up driving us into certain areas of urban, suburban mixed use developments, hotels, retail, et cetera. 
So that's where we currently sit today. One of the things I'd love for you to talk about is that complementary set of skills. When you uh, get into development, it gets quite complex. There's a financing sure. component. There's um, there's a construction component. Um, you've got a Great. title and permit yep. uh, land. So can you talk about some of the things that uh, that you brought to the table and your other partners brought to the table, yep. uh, which can educate our, our listeners around what goes into development. And you also have a pretty deep background in adaptive reuse, which I'm uh, interested to hear more about for those of us sure. that live in communities where you see old building stock and you'd <laughs> love to think, you know, there's probably maybe a higher and better use for that. So, um, yeah, sure. The complementary skill set, I, I will say development is not for the faint of heart. And as they say, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and not everyone is doing it. So um, the the new construction component as well has a heavy, heavy, um, you know, ramp up and skill set. And the first thing to learn as I got into development is to know what you don't know first um, and then supplement those skill sets with things that you don't know. Um, and having really, really good people around. It just so happened that between myself as a legacy investment banker um, and knowing capital markets, deal structuring, and having a deep bench of investors, when you complemented that with my first partner, Simon Burgess, Simon Burgess came with a very prolific uh, civil engineering, um, first off background, quantity surveyor, which we don't have those here in the States, that was in Europe, um, but ultimately having it in, in, in heavy construction. So having that background in understanding those pieces couple with the fact that doing development in other countries, uh, the fundamentals are still there. It's all about what is the current use of the property? What is the in new intended use of the property and how to work through? And it really comes down to people. Um, you have to understand what the drivers are for the municipality that you're in. You have to understand what is their long-term vision for that. And the thing that I learned over that time period was that as you understand your construction needs and have a partner like mine and Simon that was able to help educate me on how to assess construction risk, we'll call it. Um, and then as you look at development, development really, that whole process on development is really about people. It's about understanding that and learning our first few projects under Simon's guidance and then recognizing that a lot of what I've done on the structured finance side and investment banking side was also about people understanding structures, understanding the needs of the complexities of a transaction. It meant that you have to be effective communicators in that. And I feel like that between the two of us and then you layer on our third partner, who was a chief investment officer of a publicly traded fund, you now layer in a concentric circle components where you had construction, you had development, you had financing, you had accounting, you had investor relations and reporting. So immediately, obviously, you have experience, years that then come together into one company that really set us apart where we you know, founded the company thinking we do our first deal together, not really recognizing. I wish I could say we sat on a table and said, we're going to grow this thing out to where we currently are today. We didn't. We got together thinking, okay, this is the next run. We closed our first deal six months after we founded the company and fast forward, you know, you get into close to 20 transactions and all of a sudden you have staff and people and you start to grow. And it really was having, um, I'll tell you, partners are difficult. Um, I have a fantastic partnership. We've been through, and I know you'll ask me this later, but COVID and some of these other pieces, but specifically on the skill set side, making sure you either hire what you don't know. Um, and you find professionals that can help you. And hire doesn't mean W-2. It could also mean vendors, architects, engineers, et cetera, people that you trust 
Um, referrals are always the best ones that people have worked with in the past. And so as we came together, we were fortunate in that we, the three of us had been through partnerships um, where we succeeded and failed and came together in a partnership that really, really was complimentary for the skill sets that we had. And I know you played a little ball in your day. Um, <laughs> I tried so, to. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't exaggerate. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love for you to maybe draw a parallel because, um, you know, I, I have three children. I know you have a family and our kids are busy, you know, doing lots of sports. And uh, I'm always trying to take lessons from the, the business world, you know, and apply them sure. to the sports world or vice versa. So what can you think back to your playing days with coaches or, yeah. you know, the teammates that you've applied um, before we rock and roll on housing? Sure. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I took um, um, football specifically when I was in high school, I came from a broken home and in, in football, as I was, didn't play until my sophomore year of high school um, gave me an opportunity to understand um, hard work, um, pain, um, both physically and mentally, um, and ultimately triumph, triumph through losing and triumph through winning and understanding what that is. And when you, and to this day, as I had three sons and have three sons, um, you know, I, I coached for 12 years, coached my last year, last year, and wanting to give back to those same kids, what coaches did for me, which was playing pseudo father roles or pseudo older brother roles or whatever those may be, the uncle that you didn't have. Um, and as it worked through, it was really truly about team because 11, 11 guys on the field on one side working in unison, one goes down, there's a gap, there's a hole, there's something that creates um, a play, no matter how good your athletes are. So um, it, I have lived by the team mentality that is really at my core and finding that, that, that every, every, every single position in our company or every single position on the field ultimately is a leader in their own right and whatever they do managing up managing down left and right I'm um, I like I hate the proverbial matrix management uh, Andre so yeah but 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 truly um, every piece has um, its 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 meaning for it so I, I, I all of my sons are required to play sports um, um, period no matter what in order to have an understanding of what team means and that and that by the way could be fine arts um, that could be in any piece but understanding that they've got to join. So I've taken that, learned from some really great people. When I went to the University of Nebraska, Tom Osborne was the head coach of the football team there. I attempted to walk on, was part of the organization for a couple of years and to see his leadership both quietly and very succinctly has really helped me as I went through and saw, um, you know, how to, what type of coach, did, what type of father, what type of, did I want to be in a business leader? So it plays a very, very large part um, for me in how I, approach a growing, you know, a new business. You see the the developer mogul mentality. It's easy for those of us, maybe from outside looking in that development is about that one individual and their mm. vision. And you've just dispelled that it's much more about a team and complementary team no members. Doubt. And I think that's super powerful insights. No well, let's talk housing. So you guys are doing some really interesting stuff um, at Trilogy, and I know Trilogy, you know, really was born out of a deal and born out of that transaction in Winston-Salem. I want to throw some statistics out there for listeners that I was looking at before uh, today's show. So the build for rent uh, market comprises, if my facts are correct, 6% of new homes annually in the U.S., according to Hunter Housing Economics, um, which projects to potentially double by 2024, which means that almost 94% of the new single family product coming on the market 
is is to sell. It's not for rent. Now you guys are flipping that. You're doing single family for rent. Yep. Um, so what did you see? What were the you know influences in that deal that you mentioned that yep. uh, allowed this company to kind of come to be? Uh, I'd love sure. for you to give us that backstory. Yeah, and, and it's and it's interesting you say that because if you look at an additional statistic to supplement what you just said, six percent relative to 12% on the double in the for sale side is that there's currently, as of 90 days ago, housing statistic was also given that we have a 5 million home shortfall of for sale units in the United States. So outside of any for rent opportunity, you still have a housing shortage, demographic agnostic, whether it's low income up to the high, high income, you still have a housing shortage relative to the population growth, the demographic trends, et cetera. So for us, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, piece. Uh, Garden Style Multifamily has been one of the most successful real estate asset classes over the last, you can count it, decades. And with the amount of asset allocations that large money managers, private equity developers are moving and have continued to move their money into it, if you go back to the deal that I just referenced that we started looking at and the rising issues of construction costs, the rising issues of inflation, the rising issues of cost of home ownership and the demographic change that's occurring with millennials, the demographic change that's occurring of where um, certain areas of the country, the Southeast, the Southwest, where you've got these massive migrations occurring inter-country migrations of people moving there, what happens is good school districts generally don't have um, um, we'll call attainable housing. And there's the whole slew of like messaging around what's affordable. What's oh yeah. Workforce, what's yeah. attainable. What's, right. you know, and there's all these like misnomers that we'll get into as well. But to that point, um, it, originally the strategy of build for rent came down to fundamentals first where we were looking at a garden style multifamily where in a particular submarket called winston-salem north carolina tertiary market all of a sudden you know in many of these markets you have rent ceilings the demographic can only support x dollars you know a month doesn't matter um, how great the property is or the location at some point the demographic can only pay so much in rent so as you introduce garden style multifamily all of a sudden we saw a interesting convergence happening where our construction costs were outpacing our rental growth. So as construction costs went up and what we like to call a return on cost, as our return on cost versus our cap rate exit, and for viewers and listeners, excuse me, I'm assuming, I won't define that, I'm assuming your, your audience has that. So our return on project costs and our exit cap, cap rate um, was compressing to where um, it was not a feasible project for us to build. We went back to the drawing board and we took a 244 unit garden style multifamily deal and we quote down zoned and redesigned at the time to 186 townhomes. And what happened in that instant, put aside zoning, put aside entitlements, put aside any of that for a second. If you just look at the fundamentals, three core critical fundamentals. One, our construction costs went down by 35%. We went from commercial construction to residential code construction. Two, um, our, now imagine we go from, and everyone always thinks density. So density, 244 units relative to 186. But if you take an average square foot of 850 square feet for your 
across your one, two, and three bedroom on the multi side, and you apply that to 186 multiplied by 1200 square feet on average to 1300 square feet, your net rentable income is almost the same. So we're getting a rent premium with single family, five to 15%, depending on the market. I'm lowering my construction costs by 35%. And my rental income is, let's, let's assume for a second, it's static. So all of a sudden, my rentable square feet, excuse me, is now static. So instead of having a tight deal, I now have a very wide margin of return on project cost to exit cap, and the numbers jumped off the page. So like I said, how we started Mayfair, as we looked at it, it wasn't like we sat around a table and thought, let's get into build for rent. We literally had a bad deal, and now we have an opportunity to make it a great deal because of the fundamentals of just basic math, okay? So now to answer your question further, as we looked at what was happening with the demographics and we looked at what was going on in the market, there is a change that's happening with respect to attainability with respect to for sale residential housing. I can't tell you the number of, in the statistics I'll say it, where this is about down payment. This is about qualifying for a mortgage. And in the areas that people wanna live, there are issues, aside from supply, there are issues of affordability. Rising construction costs means rising cost of housing. So if this comes down to not having the ability, put COVID now in there where reserves are coming down, the ability of having your down payments and all of those factors that come with COVID, you now look and you say, if I want to live in Charleston, South Carolina, and I can't afford to buy a home, but I can now go into a school district in Charleston, South Carolina, and I can rent a home for my family. I can rent a home, not an apartment, but a home, a transition into a home that now gives me all of the benefits of home ownership. And, and this is our theme, and this is just a few weeks old, but flexibility is the home renter's equity. That flexibility of being able to get into that home for one of many reasons, but how about this? It now gives them the ability of owning in the neighborhood they want to be, part one. It gives them the ability of my home because of supply issues. The home that I want to buy is not going to be available for another 18 to 24 months. It gives me a bridge to home ownership. I get to move into that area, get my kids started in the school. And now I have the ability of renting a home and transitioning into a for sale home, bridge to home ownership. And then let's face it, on the millennial side, guess what they want? Flexibility. They will pay double the mortgage payment just to have the flexibility of living somewhere that they want to live and at a moment's notice deciding I'm good and we are redefining that American dream. For us, we think that the for rent is redefining the American dream for millennials and that it gives them the flexibility and the equity that they would normally bring to it. The flexibility is their equity. Yeah. So there's a lot to, to break down there. One of the things I want to do is help the listeners understand the category. This is a sure. this is a category of real estate. And if you're interested in investing in real estate, you have lots of different options. You can yep. you go to the public markets, you know, and invest in what are called REITs. You can go through um, the private markets and invest in, you mentioned garden style apartments. This particular category is talk talk to us about the category because your approach is doing, is it all single family? homes and mm -hmm. are you building entire call Great it subdivisions question. or 
what's the approach at Trilogy in terms of this this particular category uh, sure. before we jump into you know how yeah. you approach it? Yep, absolutely. So build for rent, at least we'll call it our definition. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the definition that's now being widely adopted are for rent communities, non-scattered product. That's where the difference between build for rent and SFR that you'll hear, SFR rentals, where the Great Recession created a smattering of homes all over the place where buyers, both local individual individuals or large funds, were buying up blocks of homes and managed in a scattered fashion. And, and before rent, you jump in, I yeah, want to, so that would be like the scattered approach would be more like the iBuyers. So right. the iBuyers would be groups like um, uh, Zillow, even though they just recently announced they're pulling out of the yep. institutional buying, but groups like Open Door, Redfin, OfferPad, yep. those would be- And, and American Homes for Rent as another American example. Rent. That's, how right. they, that's how they started. Yes. So these groups' strategy- uh, is we're looking to buy homes in fast-growing demographic parts of the country where people want to live, great schools, great job growth, you know, all the statistics line up. Um, that's not the approach you're taking. You're actually building and developing communities. Okay. That's correct. And, 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 and investors and owners like American Homes for Rent, who we think are best class, they're amazing, love what they've done. They really help shape developers like us and understanding where to go, how to do. Just like in every industry, you've got to have the platinum standard and they are. And so we have a great relationship with them, but here's what's interesting. They're transitioning as well into build for rent, these community driven rental communities, where if you look at a garden style multifamily apartment community or a build for rent community, the difference is one is a home and one is an apartment. Right. And that's a they fundamental are, difference. Yeah, it is. And why are so many developers moving into, is it because of construction costs? Is it because it's definitely of the one demographics? Of now. Flexibility. The, the right. investment thesis is a little different too, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I say you talked about flexibility. And right. so a big part of this is demographically driven, correct? It absolutely is. Yes. Right. Um, and, yep. and talk about that trend that yep. you see millennials, for example, uh, as one demographic, you're saying that they put more of a premium on flexibility than they do on, than say another generation would have. That's right, Gen Z building roots like myself, like the roots component and the flexibility doesn't mean they're not building roots in their family. It means that digging their heels in and in building the foundation of home ownership um, it just ultimately is not viewed the same way with this newest generation. And in and, and, and interesting part, you talk demographic, you also ask, what are we building? Because it actually all dovetails into it in that I'm asked constantly, um, it really, and it's interesting, as we're growing here, you're like, the big question is, for instance, American Homes Front was only doing single family detached homes. Um, and because they bought a smattering and now the communities that they build, they would prefer to do single family detached. That, that's a strategy for us the market and the demographic is driving the product type. So as we go into a Myrtle Beach, it's gonna look different than when we go into Raleigh. It's gonna look different when we go into Phoenix. It's gonna look different when we go into Austin, Texas. One could be driven by land constraint and density, could be driven by where the population trends are going. It can be driven by median household income. It can be driven by the, the type of family or the type of renter that's there, single, dual income, millennial, whatever it may be. And so we want to have a mindset of maintaining flexibility to the demographic, which is also why 
the builders that are in those markets actually help us define what is actually happening in those markets. So, so for instance, we will do townhomes. We will do single family, three and four bedroom detached. We will do bungalow style, one and two bedroom horizontal. We will do both in the same community. And so we try to remain agnostic and try not to be biased because the demographic ultimately will drive and the renter profile will drive the type of home that's there. So if I wanted to build single family homes, but my rent ceiling was $1,200 a month as an example in a market, the cost relative to the rents, it ultimately won't fly because you have this balancing act of what the demographic is asking for. And then ultimately, what does the return dollars also have to look for? And, and for that, you know, that that is definitely um, some of the magic sauce, we'll call it. Yeah, sure. It seems like a really interesting, complex approach because you've got matri- you've got this matrix, right? You've got all these interesting markets in the Sun Belt in the Southeast where it seems like that's where, you know, I, we're, we're maybe biased because we live in a fast growing market of, of Atlanta. Um, but there's a right. lot of growth happening in places like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, South Carolina. That's where people want to be, Florida, right? But everybody Period. wants to be there. So what, what are some <laughs> not, of- not, not historically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, historically, no. But, but when you look at it from the standpoint of building your firm and executing, you, you have to face, like any firm, headwinds. And, and there's constraints and developments, not easy. So talk a little bit about, I mean, I think you've laid out a pretty attractive yeah. case for demographics and flexibility, um, yep. et cetera. But talk about some now of the- Now it's the deal flow. Right. It's yep. the deal flow. Like, how, how do you procure it, identify yep. it, uh, get through some of the challenges with zoning and property tax issues? Yep. And, you know, there's there's the reverberation of all this growth in the single family build for rent as well. It's interesting. Um, the amount of complexities that we have gone through in the commercial development that we've done over the last recently six years, and then previously my partners having a lot more experience than myself. Um, if, if you can be a good developer and understand um, everything that we said when we first started this, this, um, this show, this, this particular one of, of identifying great sites, understanding where the trends are heading, and then not just being in front of it, but being right in the middle of it as well. These things take time. I mean, zoning entitlements take time. And so the trick of it is, is making sure that that deal flow is there. And to your point, if you look at just 12 months ago to today in certain markets, um, the influx of capital and the influx of quote unquote, build for rent developers, whether they're home builders, for sale home builders that are now looking at a rental product as a catalyst for home ownership are getting into it, like Lennar, I mean, big, big folks, um, or you look at private equity putting money behind large sponsors um, or behind property managers that want to get into build for rent or, or behind home builders that want to get into build for rent. What's interesting is, is you're right, highly competitive, but right now I still feel like we're in the bottom of the first of the top of the second with it because what's interesting is is most of the money is going into the primary markets and we think that might be might be wrong but the 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 data that we have shows 
and the algorithms that we have built to spit this fancy data out has says that the secondary and tertiary markets surrounding the primaries are where people are heading and are where people are going. So when you see 17% rental growth in 2020 across the country, on average, you're right, in some instances it's six, in some areas it's 30s, but when you look at that, what we have to figure out is that's not sustainable. We know that. We know you can't you can't do 17% a year. But what we do know is, is that where the population migration is going in those secondary and tertiaries, guess what? Not a lot of competition right now. Yeah. So hopefully you don't have, I mean, I hope you have 50 million people on listening in on. So I'm telling everyone now <laughs> our special sauce, but right, right. Look, we believe, for instance, you have Raleigh and Charlotte as an example where everybody's in. Not a lot of people are in Winston-Salem. Right. A lot of people are in Charleston. Not a lot of people are in Somerville or in right. North Myrtle. So, so you look and the fundamentals are all still there. I mean, it, 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 yes, your risk, you have to have risk adjusted return because you're not in the primary market, blah, blah, blah. But when we look at it, so yes, we've been, and since we've been in these markets for years, the relationships with the municipalities in Winston-Salem, the relationships with the municipalities in Columbia, in Charleston, in Alpharetta, all around Metro Atlanta, it gives us a, a, I don't want to say it's necessarily a leg up, but we've got experience in the markets that we're dipping our toe in. And it's given us an opportunity of accelerating our pipeline fairly quickly. Yeah, it sounds like it's uh, the, the, the difference between, say, a Nashville and maybe a Chattanooga. Um, Perfect. Or yeah, a Knoxville, a Knoxville <laughs> University town versus, you Absolutely. know, say, say a, a Nashville. It is. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about the, impact of all that capital um, to that's moved into the real estate market over the last, gosh, I, to say 10 years feels like a long time. It just seems like over the last two to four years, and maybe this is accelerated with COVID, but there's these new approaches to single family home ownership, which was always pitched, you know, as the American dream. And yeah. the quickest way to build wealth was own your home and don't rent, right? Build equity in something. And I mean, I remember it being pitched that and I'm in my early Absolutely. 40s. Yeah, I'm in you're, my mid 40s. I feel yeah, you're describing yeah. a different environment that we find ourselves in. And when you look at the companies that we talked about, like the invitation homes, the American homes for rent, and what yeah. happened after the GFC with them buying tens of thousands of single family homes, um, that trade got compressed as more capital moved in. Now you see, you mentioned groups like, you know, some of the major home builders. Uh, I saw one report that Taylor Homes is saying that potentially in the next two to three years, according to the Wall Street Journal, they may have as much as, and they're the fifth largest builder Yep. in the country, as much as 50% of their new construction could be single family for rent. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. And then you look at the venture space and you look at companies like, you know, um, Dorvest and Divi and Property Mate, these models where it's, you know, rent to own, where they're incentivizing folks to rent homes with the option of converting some of that, I guess, monthly rental. Yep payment towards a potential purchase down the road, not a requirement, but the option. So I just look at the whole sector and say, you know, single family, multifamily, it's all going through this big disruption. It is. 
and and, and, and yep. that creates opportunity. Yep. And the non-institutionalization of the single family rental market, when you look at some of the statistics that, you know, less than 2% of single family owners own less than 100 homes. Right. You're going to own more than 100 homes. It's crazy, it's right? Crazy. So, it's crazy. So, yeah. so you have this opportunity. What are the pieces you have to put in place to build your organization to capture that opportunity? Hmm. It's interesting. Um, they always say that it starts with land and in the first guy, you know, the land grab approach, right? So um, it's as we enter into the space, it's literally been a matter of months, but as we enter into the space and begin maturing the business model, the, the fundamental organizational growth strategy is land and entitlements and acquiring the land. Because Yes, we have disruptions in supply chain right now. Yes, building materials, building costs, et cetera, are all over, all over the board. A lot of uncertainty in 2022 as to how that's all going to shake out. But, but land ultimately is a static vehicle. It's there. And you make an interesting point. Why did it tighten up with all the money that went in to buy existing homes during the Great Recession? Why? Why did it do that? It tightened up because supply was eliminated. There was no more homes to buy. So right. now you're sitting there in a, I mean, think about it, the top two innovation homes in American Homes Friend have 55,000 and 80,000 respectively homes. Not a lot. Right. And they're the two biggest. Yeah. And so if you, to your point, the fragmentation of it, and this is it, I call it a little bit of the Wild West. It's very pioneering right now. No one has really grabbed hold. Everyone thinks that it's a similar process, but, but it's interesting. Um, we know of certain municipalities just in Metro Atlanta that are rewriting their zoning specifically for built for rent because it's not a single family um, residential neighborhood. It's not a multifamily garden style apartment. They're trying to figure out what is it. Right. So if you think about that, if there isn't zoning ordinances that state build for rent, if you think about that, we're literally helping the market mature in these in these different areas. So yeah. for us, we have to ultimately build an organization that can scale on the land development side, and then two, have to partner with the right builders that can help execute. Because the one thing that we know that we're not is we are not home builders. We're very good on the construction side, on the construction management side. But let's let the builders in those markets, let us feed their business so that it can help our business. And we do believe rather than taking, although the market's great right now, uh, rather than taking spec for sale risk and the risk of building a home and a buyer falling out, we believe that there is a financial model that makes sense that if we walk in into a community and say to a home builder, we're going to buy from you effectively 200 homes and they're all paid for. It, it de-risk builders need to have, in our opinion, a percentage of their portfolio that's for rent. Why? Because developers like us will pay them in full for the full lot in one neighborhood. And the carrot on the, on the or I will call it the cherry on the Sunday. we're not building communities for ourselves. Yeah. If those communities can be those builders' communities, we're going to be the owner of the community. I'm not building a trilogy community. I'm building a Lennar community. I'm building a Center Park Homes community. I'm building a, which is great. Let them reap the benefits of what they do best, which is building homes and building communities. And we want to partner with the best builders in the country. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the, the strategy for construction because um, th there is such a, a, uh, a different skill set in, 
you know, commercial development, uh, buying and acquiring land, and then actually delivering homes on budget in scale, right? Or below budget in scale. Yeah. And, and the margins can be unforgiving in an environment we're in with rising costs for steel and, you know, it lumber and, and, and labor to, to, yep. to just pick a few. What are the, you know, what are the things that um, you're hearing from municipalities? Um, it, um, there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there and perceptions. Generally, when you say townhome communities that are for rent historically have been um, for low income housing and in areas where you want um, to build residential housing that is at the demographic market that you're in, the underlying fear um, is that you're building a subpar product relative to the market, step one even on the detached side. Um, part two to that is, is generally speaking, there's because of the amount of multifamily that's coming into these, into these towns um, and that are laboring up school systems and traffic and other issues of that. Um, ironically, it's a breath of fresh air where if, if, if you're in for and max density and we have the ability of reducing that density and building um, it is education. You have to educate them that you're building a product um, that far surpasses um, typically what's even in that area. And imagine this, if you have 120 homes, townhome, single family, detached, doesn't matter, but imagine having 120 homes where every lawn is mowed. Imagine having 120 homes in a neighborhood where every single lot is manicured, the entrances, everything is taken care of, have part of the maintenance package, there isn't a for sale neighborhood at the demographic generally that you're addressing that you can drive through that doesn't have an eyesore. And so you're actually creating rental attainable housing. We call it attainable housing because it's attainable to the demographic that you're building to, not affordable, not workforce, because that all that all changes in it. You know, nurses, police officers, you know, when you hear these buzzwords, this is about the demographic of the area. And so with that, we're going to be bringing in um, homes that are manicured and that are professionally managed. And so educating the municipality that you're going to get the equivalent of a multifamily product, i.e. it's for rent. In their mind, it's the equivalence, but then educating them through that process. And truthfully, um, we've had um, really good success so far. So, so from our perspective, it's not, not to say that they won't or not to say that they will, but if you go in, and this goes back to development and people skill, if you go back in and, and take the time to educate and not try and force, um, I think, you know, I think we're going to find that this is a phenomenal alternative um, to a lot of the pushback that multi traditional multifamily developers are getting, up, up, including ourselves, um, for, for doing that. So you've talked, we've talked a lot about you know, that younger demographic uh, was on the phone earlier with somebody who's not part of that demographic and said, I feel like as an older um, individual, 60, 70, we're forgotten. Mm -hmm. Nobody builds for us anymore. Nobody builds patio communities. You know, I don't want a home with stairs and a lawn to take care of and That's a backyard crazy. pool. I want uh, a, a master on main, <laughs> master on main, two bedroom, two bathroom. But even in communities, and I'm from the Midwest, even in communities in the Midwest, where you'd think in the state of Kansas, where I grew up, um, that you'd be able to find a, a product for that demographic that's attainable. It's not. It's a $350,000, you know, patio home. And so I'm curious um, sure. to hear your take on is, is all of this and what you all are doing, is it, is it for, I mean, it's market rate. 
meaning it is. it's what the market can bear. That's right. Um, and some markets can't bear as much as other markets. That's right. But I'm, I'm just curious, where do the renters come from? Like, how do they find your homes? Yeah. Well, it's interesting as we begin delivering them, of course. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, we, it, it is um, regionalized um, and localized property management and leasing, having the best um, marketing you know, firms that will market just like any community that would be there. And the traditional outlets of online social media, websites, other pieces, um, and localized marketing, ultimately to get the knowledge out. But, but you said something super interesting there that... Um, a series of deals over the last couple of months that have, that we're actually now working on in, for instance, North Myrtle Beach. And what's interesting to your point is you actually still have the 55 plus active adult that is still moving and transitioning from being a snowbird to a permanent resident. And what we're finding is that we are in St. Augustine, in Hudson, Florida, in um, Ponte Vedra and in these areas where you actually are seeing a lot of growth and we're actually looking at considerations for 55 plus because they are a rental, a renter that is coming in droves to these secondary, right. coastal, we'll call it red state areas. They just are. And they generally have more disposable income. It's funny. And I, we think this, this, we might be wrong, but that the median household income that when you look at it, um, the reason why those household incomes seem to compress, but why are the rents approaching 175 a foot? Where you look and you go, how are you making $50,000 as a median household income and affording a $1.75 uh, per, you know, per square foot rent? Well, the reason is, is that we believe it's, it's supplemental income um, that they're making with a lot of disposable income through retirement savings. Because, and you have this mass demographic that's transitioning into these areas that ultimately to your point, want a master on main, one bedroom up, they want a garage and they want it to be small, 1200 feet, 1100 feet. And they want the flexibility of having the grandkids um, in, in the bedroom, but they wanna live in these coastal towns. And right. so once again, we want to address the demographic is I guess I still, I still, you, you said it perfectly is that why are they not being addressed now in Kansas? We're not in Kansas right now. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but we, you know, we're also not in Lincoln, Nebraska either, which I right. think is phenomenal, but well, so certain markets just, just aren't going to work for every product type per se, but I was just having this conversation and, and I thought, you know, that uh, population, that boomer generation and that millennial generation, those are the two big growing demographics, that's right? right? Yep. And so Absolutely. that seems to be where the action is, but it does feel like most of the growth in new models around delivering supply is traditional multifamily, you know, and, uh, and then targeted at that, that younger demographic for, you know, for, for obvious reasons. I want to ask you about the financing environment what macro forces could potentially, um, I don't want to say be a threat to the, to the model, but, but are things that you have to kind of pay attention to? Sure. I mean, you know, it's interesting with the amount of debt, um, you know, that our country, you know, currently quote unquote services, if you think just logically around um, increasing the Fed funds rate and increasing, you know, just the natural interest rate, the problem is, is that if you, it's, 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 it's like, an economic theory that that isn't playing out textbook wise because yeah. you have to keep rates low in order to protect our country's ability to service its own debt. Right. right. 
So, so by raising them, you're, you're ultimately creating what you can't, which is the inability to service your debt. So then we default as a country, right? So the underlying issues and why inflation and all the other things, all right, if you can't raise interest rates, well, you might as well raise the price of goods because that's the only way to pay for everything else that's there. So what, what we're finding right now is, is we think that over the next few years, I don't know what few means, could be three, could be yeah. five, that rates are still going to re remain relatively. And so the real concentration right now is making sure as rising costs go is maintaining a healthy, healthy discipline of debt yield constraints for the financing that's available in the market, which is plentiful right now, and making sure that we're not fooling ourselves on debt service coverage ratios, that debt yield ultimately proves it proves the point. If your return on project cost, which is completely unlevered, here's the income coming in for your cost, is north of your debt service, you're good. <laughs> so so it, it, it's, it's, it's basic, it, it, and sometimes we make it more complicated, but it really is that basic, maintaining a healthy de debt yield to ensure that as your rents begin to slow on growth, because they will, they won't maintain you know, what we're doing over the last couple of years now. But as those rents begin to slow is making sure that you're in a stable you know, interest rate environment uh, you know, with respect to debt. So very quickly, get enough of the deals under construction, get enough of the deals stabilized over the next three to five years leverage, um, not the proverbial leverage, but but leverage the low interest rate environment to put long-term debt on there. And if there's an opportunity um, to sell, great. If not, and you've got to weather the next storm, um, then ultimately you're sitting there and, main, and maintaining those those uh, those covenants. Yeah. I mean, I would think that a, uh, a single family rental community um, where you have quote unquote control, you've got professional property management, it's not the scattered onesie twosie approach and it's in size, would potentially create a lot of exit optionality Big to time. REITs, to institutional groups, et cetera, Big time. where they have capital allocation issues in, in, in terms of small bite sizes. You That's know? Right. And they need Big stuff time. in the tens or hundreds of millions. If we put our investor due diligence hat on and think about the space, what are some of the things that you guys have learned um, are allowing you to differentiate your platform um, our differentiator, at least right now, is a pipeline. I mean, okay. you know, you 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 said it very very astutely and succinctly. Is that there is a lot of capital out there that's chasing with not a lot of deals because it is so early in the cycle of this asset class in the length of time it takes to get the land zoned, entitled, permitted, constructed, built, stabilized. It's a long process relative to buying a hotel and converting it to multifamily. In nine months, you're up and going. You rent it out. It, it, the cycle is so much, so much shorter. Development and construction cycle is just long. So what's happening there is there's a lot of money that wants to get into it. And they're trying to figure out um, how do we get into the deal with some nominal amounts of size? You're, to your other point, buying a $2 million piece of dirt for an institutional investor like Blackstone or Goldman is not, not going to happen. Not right. on the radar, doesn't move the needle. But if you've got 35 three to $5 million land purchases. Now all of a sudden there's some size. So for us, I was at a dinner even last night and, and you look at some of the builders and private equity and fund allocators and money managers and brokers, and you look, the single biggest issue across 18 people at the dinner was deal flow. Well, you look at our pipeline at 3,600 homes right now. Um, and then the future pipeline over the next six months of another 3,000. We don't have to do anything else but execute on that. And that pipeline is what's building some differentiation. I'd love to have you back, yeah, Jason, great. to 
you know, give our listeners an update. This is a really interesting and exciting area of the housing uh, conversation. And I know that there is a lot of additional questions that, um, that, that our listeners, you know, and, and hopefully folks that, that tune in will have, and I'd love to be able to post those to you and, you know, six months or so, and I'm sure you'll have more projects. I would love to end by you telling us where we can learn more about what you're doing. Do you have a sure. website? Do you guys, are you <laughs> yeah. active on we social media? We haven't even media? launched a website yet. <laughs> okay. You're very early. Good. Well, yeah. we are. Um, here's what I'd say. Um, you can absolutely reach us at MayfairStreetPartners.com. I mean, obviously that's our, um, our home base. Um, we're obviously setting up, um, you know, Trilogy um, on the marketing side. And truly, we've in, it, there's been a lot of intention of playing under the radar because there is um, so much um, happening in the space that, uh, but over the course of the next, um, you know, 30 to 45 days, we'll be happy to present that stuff back to you, Andres. You'll be able to present it back out to your, to your, to your listeners. And, um, and we look forward to that. I will tell you, um, we did just open the Hamilton Hotel in downtown Alpharetta. Um, so if you ever want to see just a cool experience, um, come on up. You can see some of at least our capabilities. Um, super cool. That's exciting. Well, Jason Joseph, Managing Partner and Chief Investment Officer of Trilogy Investments and Mayfair Street Partners. I really appreciate you joining me today on the ATL Alts podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. For those of you that were able to tune into today's show, um, I'd encourage you to go out and uh, give us a rating at atlalts.com. Check us out on social media at ATL Alts. And please leave us a comment or question and send us an idea of a future guest that you think we should interview on the show. Thanks for joining us, everybody.